House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You're back in the House of Mystery on KKNW 1150 AM Seattle. I'm Al Warren. And I'm Kev Thompson. And here we go again. So um, I've got my coffee and we're ready. This is going to be quite the ride today. We're, we've got a returning guest and uh, always interesting. He's uh, been a writer in uh, both uh, fiction and nonfiction, I'm sorry, and history. And um, very interesting books. And he's really a Ted Bundy expert. So we're going to be talking about that last book he did, The Bundy Secrets, and that's Hidden Files on America's Worst Serial Killer. And he's also got a new book coming out in April, so we have lots to talk about. So, Kevin Sullivan, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I, uh, it's been some time since I've been on the show, so I'm happy to be back with you all. Yeah, it's it's our pleasure. It's just we've we've been uh, moving and busy and and it's crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, up to five days a week now, and we've got a oh, couple sure. more stations and that's, keeping us running. That's <laughs> great. That's great. Yeah, Thanks. all all together we're seven days a week between all the stations. Yeah. yeah. Cool. We're. Uh, we're running, and it's all it's all crime and history. So there's, there, and it seems to be a lot of interest. So it's really been growing, and we just picked up two stations yeah. in, in Utah, and we appreciate having them on board. That was uh, KYH oh, KYH five forty AM and KFX ninety eight point three. So so well, if things keep going, yeah, I'm just saying you'll be picking up even more stations. So keep going. It'll be it it'll just be on a roll. Yeah, we'll just keep going. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, we're just taking it where the people want it. And we're just right. roll, rolling it out, and we talk about we talk with people like you and a lot of authors, filmmakers, and we're just putting it out there, and people really seem to enjoy this type of radio. So, Sure. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think it's a great alternative to all the uh, political radio and talking going on right because there's, oh, sure. there's so oh, much of that it's absolutely like, it's like get your head out of that let's talk about something a little more interesting you know so um yeah sure. it's been it's been good for us so how have you been how, what's been going on with you i i haven't yeah you're right you know, just extremely just extremely busy so much going on i've been writing uh just a lot and uh the new book um that is just coming out uh, called Through an Unlocked Door. That is, was scheduled to be coming out April 1st, but uh, I, I talked to the publisher. We had to go through some final things that were pre-publication. I said, so it's April 1st. She said, oh, no, it, it's going off to the printer in just a day or so. So it probably will be published in the next week or less. Oh. But um, <laughs> just just staying extremely. She said, well, you can't really go by that when we post that on Amazon. Shall we publish April first? A lot of times they are early, but anyway, just a lot of stuff going on. I'm working on another book now. That one uh, I had finished back in um, late May, and then there was things to do during the year with that, and uh, so just just busy. Seems to be kind of like you know one book after the other. And besides all that, I have uh, you know, I pastor a small church, and I have a counseling service, and. And uh, so it keeps me busy. So it's like 
I'm always going and doing something. So that's that's how my life has been for the last since you, since you and I talk. Well, you know, but it's good. It's good to keep busy. It's good to keep doing things and and moving forward. Oh, sure. I, I think it's I, we. Kevin and I, and even the other hosts we have, we all live pretty busy lives, mm-hmm. so I agree. <laughs> actually, it's actually good to be busy. I couldn't, I couldn't stand not having something constructive to do. So, I mean, it's, my wife is just the opposite. She's still working, and I can't wait to do nothing. <laughs> I said, I'm never not going to do nothing. I'll always be doing something. Yeah, you know, and plus I find it hard myself, like all of a sudden you've got a day uh-huh. where you're not doing something, it's kind of like, okay. <laughs> you feel like you need to be doing yeah. something. Yeah. I mean, sometimes. We go on vacation now, we go on vacation, I, I end up working a little bit, and my wife doesn't get mad at me, I just, you know, I have my computer with me, so I have to work a little <laughs> bit, but she's, she, she's cool with it. <laughs> yeah, well that's great, you know, because that's a, that's a touchy one. So, well, this yeah. new book that, that, you know, it's really interesting as in um, just the, the, yeah. the cover yeah. and sort of what what, yes. what it's written about. It says, Through the Unlocked Door, sure. In Walks Murder. So this is kind of a yes. little different than just a Ted Bundy book. What What is that about? You know, uh, it's very interesting. I, I have about five publishers, six if you count. McFarland's imprint, which is uh, their new imprint called Exposit Books, but um, I was in uh, a conversation with them about uh, oh, I'd say a year and a half ago, and they've been wanting me to write another book for them, and it's just it never worked out. So we, we, we worked out a deal on something, and they said, uh, you know, what do you want to write about? And I said, well, there's this book I've, wanting, I've been wanting to write about for years, and I have never been able to get to it. It's always been on the back burner. And um, it, I, I, when I do write it, I want to call it Through an Unlocked Door. And that was very intriguing to them, and we talked about it. And so when I decided, when we worked something out, and I, and I decided to go ahead and write a book for them, for their new, uh, their, their new imprint, um, I, um, I said, that's what I'm going to do. So... The, the whole thing that came from, as far as I know, there's not another book out there like it. Um, you can't really, nobody seems to talk about that, but here's the deal. When I was a kid, when I was 10 years old, and I talk about this in the preface of the book, and I've spoken about this on other radio shows, but when I was 10 years old, I picked a book off my father's shelf called The World's Worst Murderers by Charles Franklin. I had never, it was an adult book. Uh, I had to, uh, I, I thought I just had to read this thing, but it's my dad's book. So I started plowing through it, and I read the book within three weeks. And uh, about all these different cases of murder, was, uh, he, he was an English author. It was, it was published in Britain in 1965, and then in the same year, uh, the American release occurred as well. And uh, so I read it, you know, you know, when I was 10. Well, that, that was fascinating to me, but it made a, a, a real impression on me that no matter when I'm out playing, how nice the sunshine is, the nice people that are uh, walking by me, that evil exists and people can be murdered, that there can be slaughter. And so it kind of piqued my interest and got me to thinking, well, through the years, 
I would hear about people entering other people's homes through unlocked doors or unlocked windows and being murdered. Now, most of most of the murder that uh, I have read about in true crime or write about, uh, most of, a lot of it happens, of course, outside the home. Uh, but these killers are either going through unlocked doors or, or in some cases they break in or they kill people on the street. So the unlocked door is not an all-inclusive subject, but when you start looking at how often it occurs and the... Um, I almost want to say the American way of looking at things pertaining to unlocked doors, it's absolutely astounding. Um, when, when murders occur, there was a murder that I wrote about in Pennsylvania, and this is in the book, uh, a kid named Alec Kreider, he was 16. He had, um, he had wanted to murder for quite some time. He didn't tell his father, he didn't tell anybody. He decided to pick his good friend, Kevin Haynes, and um, in the middle of the night, he left his home, went into their home. He knew their home would be unlocked. It was. He got in there and was able to kill the parents, kill Kevin, and he would have killed the sister, Maggie, but but he didn't know that she was home from college. Now, when I talked to the district attorney in that area, who, uh, you know, worked that case. Um, uh, he talked about uh, the people there that in this area. He said, uh, until that occurred, many people left their doors unlocked. And you can see from the reports there that it was a common thing to leave their doors unlocked at night. And so when I, you know, spoke to him uh, about this, the, the, the murders that happened a number of years earlier, you could see that once they happened, people started locking their doors, people put in uh, alarms, some people couldn't sleep at night, they had to keep looking out the window, just abject fear, uh, they took it into the irrational level, and, uh, you know, uh, if they didn't have guns, they bought them, if they had guns, they bought more ammunition, and it was this reaction to it. So you would think, that that might stay, not the irrational portion of it, but people would say, yeah, it happened once, it happened again. So the, so the DA told me, said, but you know, he said, it kind of went back to normal, and a lot of people around there now, they're sleeping again with their doors unlocked. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a theme that, that killers, and even those who don't want to kill burglars, they, they depend on this. They depend on entering homes uh, through unlocked doors, if possible. There are some killers out there who would refuse to break an enter. They would just enter. Coming through an unlocked door is not technically a break-in. It's an unlawful, unlawful entering. Really? But there, there, there's a couple, yeah, there's a couple killers in the book. I mean, they, everybody says it's a break-in. It's not. Somebody broke into my car. You start asking him, it's on the street. Was your car locked? No. I said, well, then that's unlawful entering. That's not a break-in. They didn't break into the car. They entered it unlawfully. But people have these these, these things in their head about what you know, um, um, you know, the law says about that. So it, it's an unlawful entry, but there wasn't any forced entry. That's another way cops look at it. Was there forced entry? No, we can't find forced entry. Therefore, they must have entered through an unlocked window, unlocked door, and 
that's how that works. So anyway, when I was growing up, I would compile these things in my mind. I remembered a lot of them. And uh, so when I decided to write this book, I thought, I'm finally going to do it. I'm going to write a book about all of these things happening and how, and the almost the psychological disadvantages people have and um, of not understanding how dangerous it could be to, to leave their door, doors on like that. In fact, in the preface, also talk about, I don't know if you've ever, you all have ever seen the movie Sea of Love with Al Pacino and Ellen Barkin. But at one point, Pacino and Barkin are walking uh, down some streets in New York City, and he's pointing out various areas where murders have occurred, these terrible things that he had to work, these cases he had to work. And, uh, you know, she's, you know, she's not a homicide cop. She, you know, and he said, it's, 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 he talked about how people, he said, we see things, cops who do this, we see things differently than you see things and other people see things. So they don't, they don't see this stuff. And so they view the world differently. So I, I say in the preface, I say it's my hope that by the time people get done reading this book, they will all see, um, well, the you, truth you, you of what to, all this is, what, yeah. what's out there. Yeah, you have yeah. to protect yourself. I, I don't think that um, people realize that um, the law isn't really going to protect you. And I don't mean that as a slam toward cops, but I mean to sit there oh, and, no. or to say, well, you know, my door was open. It's against the law to come in. That isn't going right. to stop a killer. He's going to come in. He's going to come in. No. You know, so we've got to look out right. for ourselves. I mean, the right, law is right. there to help us. But uh, mm-hmm. so that, that's how I see it. Yeah. Um, you know. oh, in fact, I have a I have a friend who was a police officer for years, and he said, you know, he said people need to learn to protect themselves because he said usually they respond to things that are already occurring. Exactly. We, we I was call to make that point. Yeah, something's in process, and we very often we can't get there soon enough. And um, you know, a lot of times the case really starts when you're standing over a body. And that's a terrible, terrible thing. So people need to be able to defend themselves. And I, I had a lady come to me once, and um, she had a problem with an ex-husband who she feared was violent. She said, should I get a restraining order? I said, I said, you actually need to get a handgun, and you need to go be trained with that handgun. I, and I, I've been a firearms instructor to people, but... But I was kind of like out of that then. I wasn't doing uh, that. I'm doing casing for people. But um, I said, you've got to get a gun and you've got to train for it. You've got to psychologically be ready to use that gun. I said, you can get a restraining order, but that's not going to stop these people. And I, I have heard um, 911 calls where you can hear them breaking in and the woman screaming on the line, her and get here. And in one case, you could hear this woman being beaten to death by her husband. And um, she had a restraining order. So that's what a restraining order will do if you have nothing else to protect yourself. So even cops know this. It really is up to people to look after themselves, protect themselves. And one of the best ways they can do it is lock their doors and their windows at night. Right. And that's it, the first step, anyway. If I, if I can amend what you were just saying, um, uh, allow me to agree, agree wholeheartedly. Uh, you know, as a law enforcement officer, you know, getting a restraining order is the, is the pat answer. 
Yeah, but I, yeah. I agree with the handgun because a restraining order in and of itself is just a piece of paper. It doesn't oh, yeah. change the psyche of the person who you're trying to restrain. No, unfortunately not. No, terrible. You know, and so many of these people end up, you know, being assaulted or something else happening, and, and uh, nobody wants to talk about it. I remember, does everybody remember the, the uh, massacre at movies back in Texas, back in the 1980s, was 80s, 90s maybe? It was a long, long time ago. A guy drove his truck, I think it's Canada, I'm not sure. He drove his truck into the middle of this place and and got out of the truck and started shooting. There was about 80 people there. These, most of them scattered. Some of them hid underneath tables. And the ones who stayed there and hid, hid, a lot of them were killed. Now, there was one woman there who had petitioned to get a um, concealed carry license in Texas and uh, had been turned down. And she had a gun in her glove compartment, and she was going to eat it with her elderly parents that day, or maybe they weren't quite elderly, but they were her parents. And and she thought about taking the handgun in with her, but she said, no, I'm going to obey the law. And she didn't do it. And she was in there, and both her parents were killed. And um, she was instrumental in getting that passed in the uh, state of Texas. And I remember I was on the phone talking to a sheriff, not about that, but about uh, uh, this other thing I was trying to, this other case, this other thing I was trying to find out about. And, and we talked about concealed carry, and I said, how do you feel about that? And um, he said, well, I kind of hate to see it, which is unusual for police officers uh, to say that. Most of them understand that people need to arm themselves. I said, well, you know, I'm going to get mine. What he didn't know is I had already been carrying one. I had started carrying a handgun illegally. After movies, I thought, I, I am not going to be in a... I've been well-trained in handguns and firearms since I was 16. I'll be 63 next month. And I said, I am not going to be in a restaurant and have somebody come in with my wife and kids and do something. It's not going to happen. It's not. And if I get arrested, then I'll have a misdemeanor charge or whatever it is, but I'll be alive. And uh, so I did. So when the concealed carry came along, I just made it legal. But but that was it. I was going to do it, and if they took it away today, I'd be carrying one today. It wouldn't matter what the law says. Yeah. So anyway, that, that's, that, that, that's just how I view it. Everybody's got to take their own personal responsibility and, and save it themselves. Police will do everything they can to help you if they can get there. The bottom line is that's going to be a problem because they're not waiting around at your home when something yeah. happens. So oh, they do everything they can, but yeah. it's very limited from what they can do. Yeah. Yeah, they've got donuts to eat. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> that's true. Oh, wow. <laughs> no. I used to eat donuts. I don't eat those anymore. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll take no, that. Really, I'll take my hand off there. I'll take, I'll take the my hand off the cops. They really do a good job. I've, I've worked with a lot of on, on the right. And I nearly became a police officer at one time. But, uh, but, but I, just, I, I, I had an accident and injured my leg, and I couldn't go down that road. Now, you, so, picked, you picked 13 high-profile cases. How, which cases kind of did you pick, and how did you pick those? Well, uh, there's, there's some even more high-profile than others. As I say in the preface, some of these got national attention. Some of them just kind of shook a region, and then others were 
uh, more localized, but they're all uh, uh, high profile for whatever area that they're in. But a number of them made net, you know, uh, national news. Um, I, I, one case I write about in there is um, um, uh, the uh, Night Stalker, uh, Richard, Richard, you know, uh, Ramirez, right. and many of the homes that he went into were through unlocked doors or windows. So he was one of these people who wanted to take advantage of him. I mean, he would he, he would jimmy things open, but but I mean I mean it also listen when people don't have a really strict uh, set of procedures in mind to protect themselves, uh, they may even uh, fail to compensate in certain areas. I write about grounds where. People have, for, for example, may, maybe their door, front door was locked or their window, but they have a sliding glass door, and because it was in the back door, it was left open, you know? Yeah. And they're thinking, well, you know, I lock up my front door, but maybe not my back door. And there's a number of people that, that who, when people have been able to jimmy those doors and slide them, that is so easily rectified with just putting a piece of wood or a bar down in that door so that it cannot slide. But a lot of people easy, don't do that. Easy fix. Easy fix. And you're not going to open it. You can't get it open. Jimmy all day, you're not going in that way. But, uh, so, yeah, it's very easy. So, uh, he was one that would look for those kinds of easy entrances. And there were other things. I mean, I write about a guy that, um, here in a family in Versailles, Kentucky, which is about 15 miles outside of Lexington. This is so exceedingly strange when you think of murders happening just by chance. There was a, a, a fellow that, from all outward appearance, was a normal guy. He was a, a, a nurse up in Indianapolis. He had a lot of friends. He was well-respected. He made decent money. He made good money. He just was normal. And he got in his car one night, and he drove south. And he came through Kentucky. And Indianapolis is a straight shot down to Louisville, but he didn't stop in Louisville. He, I don't know which way he went. If he came to Louisville, then he turned and he had his door Lexington. I don't know, but he got to Lexington, Kentucky, and he, then he, he veered off of that and he went to uh, Versailles, Kentucky, a small town. And he was just meandering through the darkened streets of Versailles. He stopped at a house at 311, uh, 311 Douglas Avenue, uh, which was on the corner of Douglas and, and a Gray Street, a small street. And for some reason, he just got out and he walked up the front steps of that house, turned the knob on the front door, and entered. It was open. And the folks that lived in that house, I was... Uh, at their request, I changed their last name. Uh, I changed their names, but um, but uh, I left the name of the killer in there. Anybody Googles it, they find the, the real name of the victim. But what happened was, he wandered around in the lower level of the home. Upstairs, there was his son. Uh, there, there was a, a young boy sleeping and uh, a couple girls, uh, three children. The dad was asleep upstairs, and the mother was working, I believe, for UPS. She was, she was at work. It was, it was. Uh, she worked third shift, 
and the door was unlocked. And so he comes in, and he ends up getting a butcher knife out of the kitchen, uh, you know, thing, the little, you know, cutlery thing where you pull one out, I guess, or it, it might have been in the door, but he got a butcher knife. He walked up the steps, and he walked in this kid's room. We don't know how long he stood over him, but he started stabbing him in the head, I mean, in, in, yeah, in, the, in the neck. And, of course, that little boy expired within a, uh, just a few minutes. And as soon as this attack started, there, you know, this guy was making noise. The kid started screaming. Um, the sister tried, jumped out of bed and tried to attack this guy, and he threw her down or something. The father heard it. He got up, and he wrestled with this guy. And he managed to pin this guy. Well, I think one of the kids was able to call 911. And, uh, and so they arrested him. Now, what happened to this man, nobody knows. Well, when people that uh, his attorneys got to him and then people that knew him, he was in a state, uh, look, it's one they said mostly that he was, you know, psychotic. Well, it was, it was weird that he had never exhibited any symptoms of that. And I, I don't believe drugs were even a factor. But you can't get anything more bizarre. Now, here, here's the key. Now, the parents, you know, they, they, I can tell you now on this show, they were not pleased uh, that I was writing about their child. In fact, they found out because a fellow that I know who's also a police officer is their neighbor. They, they left there. They moved from there. They moved. That was a rental. They moved and they had a buying a house somewhere else in, in the city. And this cop guy that I know, he's his neighbor. And he just had to tell me that I was writing a book on this. And I thought, oh, I would have done that. But, but, but he did. Yeah, and so I had some, I, yeah, it, was, it, 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 it wasn't free. But I said, okay, here's what I'll do. I said, if they request I not use the name. And I said, I will not do that. But I said, I won't change anything else. And I won't not, not write about it. And I said, besides, once, if you see it, you'll see that everything that I write about in there, is already information that is released, and uh, so anyway. But I changed, I, I changed the names. But but uh, you know, in, in a case like that, I wouldn't even contact the family. I don't want to bring more pain in their lives by asking them to remember things or to do things. It's my job just to write about what has occurred for the benefit of society at large. And so the last thing I wanted to do was create a problem for them. So once they contacted me and we discussed it, I said, okay, you want the name change? I'll be more than happy to do that. And, and I'm so sorry for, for your loss. But as a true crime writer, you will run into that occasionally. And uh, people will want to talk to you. And I, I've never found it. I've never found it um, fun. I've never found it nice to do. And uh, it's not easy for me to have to talk with them about that. But... But uh, but when they want to contact me and talk, you know that's fine. So anyway, but yeah, but it's a strange case, and so you you go from something like Richard Ramirez, uh, then I also write about uh, that Resendez guy who was the railroad killer. Then uh, I, I also write about Tommy Lynn Sells, who was he liked to call himself Coast to Coast, <laughs> and there was a number of things he got into. Yeah, so yeah, he just liked to call himself that, and uh, he's around the rails too. And he, you know, he, he he would kill people. So just things like that. So some of these cases, people will recognize immediately, but others they may not. But the one central theme running through them all will be 
unlocked doors and unlocked windows. And then there there'll be cases that I talk about here where the same killer doesn't doesn't necessarily while I'm talking about a particular story go through an unlocked door or or something like that. But it's just also to uh, go deeper into how they committed murder. But almost all all the killings in there are having to do with this central thing. And it's amazing because again, this is something that people don't think about very often. And I say in the in the uh, afterward or whatever the others calling it. Um, I said, uh, you know, this won't be the last time that um, even the things I've written about here, people are still going to be murdered in their homes in the future right. by, by, by killers coming through the unlocked door. But I said, I'm hoping that if you read the book, if you're not, you, if you, I, I say, if you're locking your door, great. If you're not, if you could begin doing so you know, and do it consistently, and good, because you could save not just yourself and some of your love, and that's the absolute truth. So you, it won't guarantee you, it won't, it won't guarantee you uh, not having uh, an encounter with somebody bad. But when somebody has that have forced entry into a home, is one thing people need to remember. Many homes have dogs, and many people sleep lightly. And there have been more people killed entering homes when they were able to kill the bad guy because they grabbed a weapon and took care of it, or they forced the person to flee, and nobody was harmed. But when you have the door that's unlocked, you are, without even meaning to, you are inviting disaster. And and I'm not talking about unintelligent people. I write about a doctor, uh, the Pettit family out of Connecticut. He was a doctor. He, you know, and the family was highly educated, but they left the door unlocked. And uh, everybody in the house was killed, but the doc was murdered by the doctor. And the people doing the break-in, that's the first time they had committed murder. But the one guy, check this out, he'd been burglarizing homes in the area 14 years, and he'd been going in mostly unlocked homes at night. You imagine that? Yeah. I couldn't imagine going to sleep at night without locking my my, my, my house on it. just wouldn't happen. Yeah. Now, now, what about killers that are able to charm their way in, like Ted Bundy? Let, let's sure. let, let's segue into him for just a moment. Well, you know, Bundy, now, I will say this about Bundy. Bundy also was a uh, opportunist when it came to unlocked doors. He liked, he liked, Bundy, Bundy never burglarized the home, and Bundy, when he was on the run, um, you know, at one point, and he didn't have a vehicle, uh, he didn't know how to hotwire a car, but he would look for uh, people making it easier by having the keys hanging above the, the um, you know, um, uh, you know, the little flap, the sun flap, or in the in, in, in the console or in the glove compartment. But Bundy, of course, was you know, totally different killer. He was, uh, he, you know, he would excel at, at, uh, you know, either charm and getting a lady to go with him, which many of them were willing to do, or he could get them to follow him by way of a ruse. If you've ever seen uh, Sounds of the Lambs, and most people have, the, uh, you know, that thing where the guy's, Got a cast on his arm, the lady helps him with that. that oh, yeah. He's dropping stuff. I mean, they got that all from Bundy. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's the stuff he did. And, uh, you know, sometimes then he would just whack people in the head after he picked on bitch hiking. Uh, other times he had to lure them like he did at Lake Sammamish. He took one victim in the morning on July 14th, uh, 1974. He got uh, Janice Hoff to go with him. The, she drove off with him. Uh, tie, he tied her up, kept her all day, sexually assaulted her. Came back that afternoon. About 420, Denise, uh, uh, convinced Denise Nadlin to leave with him under some ruse, took her to where Janice was. Uh, in fact, Bobby would later tell Bill Hagmeyer, who's a FBI agent, um, that worked in the behavioral science unit, uh, and who had become friends with Bunny the last couple of years of his life to obtain information. Uh, he said that, um, Bunny admitted, uh, keeping, uh, Oddlock and then having Nadlin come, and they both saw each other, obviously. And then, of course, one was killed in front of the other. And, uh, can you, and I, I say in the book, my book, you know, the Bundy Murders Comprehensive History, um, you know, you can imagine the terror that, that erupted in one seeing the other murder. And, you know, so Bundy had various ways of, of obtaining women. He also had various ways of killing women. Bundy would occasionally want to render the woman unconscious by a blow to the head with a crowbar. Uh, and then he wanted to do things with them, and he didn't want her a part of it. He wanted her unconscious. If they'd wake up, he'd hit them again, and he just wanted to do things. And then there were times when he wanted them to be awake, and he actually wanted them to be very fearful. And that's was the case with uh, Odd and Aslan, having them two together, and then seeing one killed for the other, and then, you know, the other poor girl knows that she's going, and you just could imagine the horror. And um, so he was, a, a, he was a planner of murder. He was also an opportunist of murder. And even Bundy took advantage of the unlocked door. Actually, I didn't include Bundy. I've written so much about Bundy. I've written three books, over 600 pages about the guy. I just didn't even bother <laughs> about including him in his book. I said, no, oh, I'm done with him. You know, with, well, with, without sounding macabre, you know, when I was in college, you know, I was studying serial killers, and, and I really kind of developed an admiration for Bundy. Because how many serial killers do you know of that actually defended themselves or represented themselves in court? Yeah, poorly, but but, but he did it. Bundy was, it, it, it's kind of funny. Bundy would write a brief or he'd write something and petition the court about something that the, um, uh, that the, uh, um, prosecution was doing, and a lot of times he could shut these things down. But when it came to helping in his own defense for the actual trial, he was a disaster, and he was, you know, an impediment. And I say that the folks in Florida defending him would have rather done it with him in absentia, or not there, because he was always getting in the way. And the attorneys who knew him that had helped him before said, Ted, you know, you don't have the experience to uh, do capital cases. You, you're trying to save yourself. You've you got to have people that are very experienced with capital cases to if, if, if you want to be saved. So the, Ted was a hard-headed kind of person, slow learner, but he was – the thing about Bundy, I've always said this, and 
that Bundy is is kind of like America's Jack the Ripper. I don't think he's ever going to go away. He's ne- people are going to keep reading about it. Uh, my, my Bundy books consistently sell well. My especially my my book, The Bunny Birds, it's always just selling out there, and it's the same way. It, people are going to keep reading about this guy, and I guess everybody else's book on Bundy sells well too. Who still has Evan and Brett? And mm-hmm. even though we don't know who Jack the Ripper was, there's that mystique. Bundy has his own mystique. And even though we know who, who the killer of these girls were, Bundy is so unusual because how often do you find a killer that, first of all, doesn't look like a killer, doesn't act like a killer, you don't want to, he's not covered in tattoos, and he, you know, he, he, he fouls up his language, and he just looks, you know, like a, somebody that you need to cross the street from. The guy was a rising star in the Republican Party. He was a law student, college graduate law student. You know, he was mm-hmm. everything that you think uh, a serial killer would not be. And he was doing so well at one part as he was as a young adult coming up that some of his friends would say, you know, he's destined to become something like, you know, like important. Well, uh, they were right but not in the ways that they, you know, believed. He was going to stand out all right. Well, it wouldn't be through success. It would be through uh, all of this uh, terrible, terrible murder. And I remember I wrote in the preface of the, uh, of, uh, of the Bunny Murders that the thing about Bunny with people is this. They have a hard time bringing together the outward Bunny, which is so extremely normal and nice and friendly, with the diabol the true inner nature of the man, which is diabolical. And when they try to bring those two nations together, it's kinda of like a short circuit circuit goes on and they just can't they just can't really deal with it. They just don't know how that could possibly occur. Right. Well I, I wonder if the police are still kicking themselves because at one point they had Ted Bundy at the interrogation table. They were actually questioning him as a potential suspect and they let him go. Because he did not, well, like you said, he did not yeah. fit that profile. No. That, that they were and, they had no and, and they never had any evidence on him. I mean, I, I, I Bob Keppel, I, I, you know, out of your old area, you know, Seattle, the King County folks, um, he worked, his, his crew worked exceedingly hard to get whoever this was committing murder in their state. Well, he slips out and goes to Utah. Finally revealed there, and then they put two and two together back here. But you're right. Well, you know his girlfriend, Liz Clover, which I call her Kendall because that's her pen name in 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 my books. Uh, so I, I I use her pen name, but but she had even contacted the cops. There was a professor, a, a University of Washington professor, that did contacted the cops and said, "Listen, I got a weird guy in my class." He drives a 1968 Volkswagen. His name says, "Are we going to check him out?" Well, that was Bundy, and the professor was on to something. So they, they they had Bundy because there had been several calls that came in to their uh, headquarters concerning Ted Bundy. Uh, he was, even though he didn't look like a probable suspect because of his background, he was put into a special uh, list of 100 special suspects that they were going to have to go through 
case by case and do a really thorough job. And it just so happens when he was revealed in Utah and the Utah authorities called Seattle authorities, he had just come up to the top of the list of the hunter's suspects list and just about ready to be to have his case gone over. Well, in no time at all, the eyes of the investigators of everywhere, Utah, Washington State, Colorado, with Mike Fisher, everybody knew that's their guy. The only thing we got to do is the only thing we have to do is put this thing together and prove it. Now, Bundy was so slick with the murders in Washington State that even after he confessed it, Bob Keppel couldn't charge him with one crime because there was absolutely no evidence, none. He was exactly. never charged. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, now um, you made the point a little bit ago that Ted Bundy is probably one of the most prolific serial killers, and a lot has been written about him. What makes your book different? You know, What are the secrets, or some of the secrets, that you reveal about Bundy? Well, now, I was very fortunate when I decided to write a book about, I was never going to write a book about Ted Bundy, but I, I happened to be, I was able to meet Jerry Thompson who came to Louisville, and I live in Louisville, Kentucky. He was a friend of, a, a, a friend of mine, who's now deceased by the name of Jim Hassey, and when he came to Louisville, he brought this murder kit, he's got Ted Bundy's murder kit, and uh, uh, Utah authorities have had that for, ever since Bundy was arrested, but Jerry Thompson has personally had it. Uh, because uh, he, uh, he he was allowed to keep it and use it as teaching tools at seminars. Well, when he retired, he just took it with him. And, and really, I've been to use all They don't care. A lot of these cops keep all that stuff. Anyway, while he was here, and I got to meet Jerry, and I got to see this murder kit, even before he left, he gave me one of the glad trash bags that was in Bundy's car. He gave my friend Jim one, too. I said, hey, Jerry, uh, could you write a letter of all that he gave me? He said, yes. And it was having that bag and having had that murder kid in my home that sparked me to write about. And I thought, well, I used to write, I wasn't on staff, but I used to write for uh, a uh, print news, a weekly print newspaper called Snitch. It, it was all about crime <laughs> on the wall. And, and, and it, it, it was cool because it was a great venue for, for, for people that write through crime. A really good uh, newspaper. It was published in two, two, two cities in Kentucky and in, in four or five other states. And, um, but it, it, it was great, but it's not, it's not, you know, out of business, but it was great then. And I thought, well, I'm going to write an article about me and Jerry and all this stuff and having this market in my home. But then when I, I, can't, I couldn't turn loose from the fact that I had this bag from Ted Bundy's car. And he would use these great big glad trash bags to put the victim's clothes in. He would never, when he dumped victims, he would never, he would leave them nude. They might have a beaded necklace, but... That was it. And he would put the clothes in dumpsters down the road or somewhere. And he would use these bags. So when I started writing about Bundy, when I started researching, I had a lot of people tell me, don't do that. There's a number of books on him. It's, it's an old case. Now don't do it. Something within me said, keep going. And so I did. When I was halfway through the book, it was astounding. I was finding out new things about some of these murders that had never before been in print. And by the time I was halfway through the book, uh, it started taking on a life of its own. I can get, the best example of the new stuff I was getting is, is this. I worked with all the investigators who worked, main investigators of all the states. I also worked just by phone. I never got to meet him, but I worked with Bill Haymeyer, um, uh, who was the FBI guy who, who, who 
was see who said in every confession that Bundy ever made at the end, and and Bundy trusted him implicitly. Well, I wrote the book sequentially. I began with the murders in Washington State, then I went to the murders in Utah, and then murders in Colorado. By the time I got to Bundy's foray in Idaho, up in Pocatello, uh, where he killed 12-year-old, you know, like, uh, Lynette Culver, I had not yet gotten the case file of Lynette. But Jerry, uh, but uh, Mike Fisher, the Colorado investigator, had told me that, well, you know, Bundy drowned her in the uh, in the bathtub of his room in the Holiday Inn in the Pocatello. I said, oh, okay. Really? And I, I thought, to my, yeah, I thought to myself, well, that's a little bit of change of an MO, but this is this is something that's known. So I picked up the phone. I called Bill Hagmar. We had something I needed to talk to him about. I said, Bill, listen, I got somebody's name and her age. I don't ever really, I, I, I not really her name and the manner of her death. I, I don't know uh, anything else about her, and I haven't received the file yet. I wanted to get your, uh, see if you, if you knew anything. So when I told him how Bundy had killed Colbert, um, he, he, you know, Bundy had picked her up from a, a, a junior high school at lunch. She'd come out, and he, he, he wooed her into his Volkswagen and went back to his hotel room. And um, so anyway, uh, when I told him, Bill Hagmeyer said, well, you know, I have great respect for the fellow that told you that me, Mike Fisher, they know each other and are friends. He said, but I sat in on every confession, and I had never heard that. And I said, oh, well, let me go back and see, and I'll check it out. And I'm, I'm thinking, as Bill's telling me this, well, I'm the novice. I'm just doing the research now. Uh, he's the expert. Maybe, maybe I am wrong, but maybe, maybe I got some incorrect information. So I said, Bill, if I find out about it, I'll let you know. I, I, I call uh, uh, Mike Fisher. He said, oh, yeah. He said, I got that directly from uh, Russ Renault, the uh, uh, Idaho investigator. Who told me that? I, I got that from him. So he said, "Call Russ." So I was able to get Russ's uh, uh, name and, and number and all that stuff. And uh, so I um, called Russ. He said, "Oh yeah, that's true." And here's why Bill doesn't know it. And what happened was, uh, Russ said, and then after I got the file and I got the transcript, I could see it. They had one hour only to talk about two murders: one, the murder Bundy committed uh, in while he was driving on September 2nd, 1974, as he was driving to Utah to attend uh, law school, he picked up a hitchhiker in Idaho, murdered her that night, and then, of course, this Culver murder. So Russ said we were, we had only had an hour, we were bouncing back and forth um, between these two cases, and uh, when we mentioned the matter of death, I think I think Russ said like would it be like cranial damage from like a weapon. He said no, it would be drowning. But because Bundy had said he'd already placed the body in the Colorado River, or I'm sorry, a, a, a river five miles north of Bocadillo, which is probably the Snake River. Uh, he, you know, they kind of assumed I guess that's what he meant. But as they were leaving the prison, Renault said to his co-investigator Randy Everett. He said, you know, Bundy's never, Bundy never made it exactly clear how he drowned her. Would you go back and see? So before that meeting had broken up, that hour interview, Bundy said, and he was being as honest as he could be, he said, I know this isn't a lot of time. If you need anything else from me, I'll, I'll, I'll try to help you out. So he goes back into prison. Lo and behold, um, he, uh, they let him back into a room. Now, keep in mind, this shouldn't have happened because technically uh, – 
Haymar should have been there, and Bundy's attorney should have been there. But they let uh, Randy Everett back in his room. Fifteen minutes later, here comes Bundy. Bundy sits down. So Everett says to him, said, well, you mentioned that uh, that the Culver girl was drowned. Can you tell me about that? He said, oh, yeah, I drowned her in the bathtub in my in, in my room. And then he offered the information. She doesn't know her, said, I had sex with her after she was dead. And, of course, he, he was an acrophile, and he loved that. He loved sex prior to their deaths, as they were dying after that. So, Everett goes to him and says, he just asks him, ever be normal? He said, you know, why would you do this? He said, it was just the madness. So, what can I tell you? It, it, was, it was the madness. But anyway, so I get this information, it's confirmed. So, I know something that Bill doesn't know. It's not Bill's fault that he doesn't know it. The problem was he wasn't in this meeting, and all these years have elapsed. He just didn't know it, and so I, yeah. I mean it was weird. So I sent him an email. I said, "Hi, Bill," and I said, "Oh, well, it's true, you know." And, and, and actually, I put that email as I'm explaining what happened to this in my second book, which is the trail of Ted Bundy, uh, you know, digging up the unsold stories. And then, uh, of course, then of course, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I, I wrote a third book called "You Know the Bundy Secrets," but. There were things that came out about the murders that were just not, it was information that had never been released before. Same thing about Julie Cunningham. Mike Fisher told me things about that murder that nobody had ever talked about. And it hadn't been in print before. So there were about three or four murders with information in the Bundy murders that had never been in print before. And a lot of new stuff that's never been in print before about the case in, in a more general sense. Well, it sounds like we're going to have to do a whole other show on just that. It sounds like it, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. So what's so uh, before we get ready to say goodbye, what's coming up next for Kevin Sullivan? Well, I'm in the, in the middle of another book now. Of course, I don't really talk about it uh, until I get closer to publication, but it is yet another true crime book. And uh, so I just keep going that direction. And uh, I've done a couple documentaries uh, recently, and I've got another one to do. I've got a documentary on Ted Bundy that I shot in Daytona uh, uh, back in middle December that will be coming out on the Oxygen Network uh, sometime this year, maybe this spring, summer. I shot another one for a major cable network. I can't say who yet because they haven't given the actual technical release of the network, but I'll let people know on my Facebook page and stuff like that. And then I got another one to, uh, that I'm, I'm working with the production company that I'll probably be shooting shortly. So uh, just, you know, outside of doing those kind of things and my writing and then everything else I do with the counseling service I have, I'm just, I'm, it'll just be me doing everything I'm doing. <laughs> like, like we Staying said early, early on, staying busy. Staying so, busy, that's the only way I can live. <laughs> Go ahead. But uh, today we've talked about two of your works. We've talked about Through an Unlocked Door, and we've talked about Bundy Secrets. Where can the listeners find these books? Okay, uh, Through an Unlocked Door will be uh, in bookstores, uh, Barnes & Noble, and stuff, probably within the next month. Uh, you know, it has, it, It's getting ready to be published. And of course, they can get it off of Amazon. Uh, it, it's available for back order now, uh, pre-order, I guess you would say, and all my books, if you go to, the best thing to do, if you want to see all my books, go to my author page, Kevin Sullivan, and you, you, you can look me up at the Bundy Murders of Comprehensive History, and then if you click down there on my picture, my author page, it'll have all my books there, and it'll also have links 
to uh, articles, to blogs I've written, because I've read a lot of, I've written a, a good number of blogs for my uh, one publisher, Wild Blue Press. And uh, so you, you, everything's there, but you can actually see what, what I have in print, and then people can go from there. So either in bookstores or, or on Amazon is the best way to do it. Awesome. And is there a way that the listeners may be able to reach you personally or email you with, with new ideas? Uh, well, the best thing to do, I think, is con is go to my page at wildbluepress.com. Go to the authors and put Kevin Sullivan, or they can Google Kevin M. Sullivan, or just Kevin Sullivan, actually, Wild Blue Press. And uh, it'll bring you up to my pages, and then you can uh, send me a message through there, and I will answer it on there. And I think that's probably the best way to do it, because I used to have a separate email, but I don't have a lot of time to check it, and God knows what's on there. I feel like I can check it. In my regular email, I don't really do that with, because I have a lot of other traffic that, uh, is I don't want to kind of, you know, a lot of other stuff coming in there. But So the best thing to do is contact me through Wild Blue Press, and I'll, I will get back with you. And now let me add this. That's Kevin M. Sullivan, because if you just Google Kevin Sullivan, it comes up as a wrestler. Well, that too. Now, But it'll also um, come up with me. Unless you've got a secret history. No, no, no. See, that's the fourth thing I could do, but I'm going to refrain. Actually, I'm too old now. They would kind of, they would just kind of like fold me up and do a little box and mail me off or something. <laughs> well, Kevin, as always, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much. It's always great to be here with you all, and uh, I look forward to next time. Awesome, and we'll. So do we. But thank you, thank all you right. very much for joining us on the House of Mystery. To find out more about our show, guests, or listen to a previous show, visit our website at www.somethingweirdmedia.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you! If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.